This is Very Public Affairs, the podcast of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. Here's your host, Wayne Burns. Welcome to Very Public Affairs, the regular podcast of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. I'm Wayne Burns, Director of the Centre, and in this episode, we'll be getting a view of the state of public affairs globally from Doug Pinkham, President of the Washington, D.C.-based Public Affairs Council. We'll be asking Doug what shape does he think the management function is in. Doug and his team in Washington and Brussels have a front-row view of the socio-political outlook of some of the world's largest corporations. Faced with digital and other business model disruption and an increasingly noisy, protectionist and combative marketplace in which companies are attempting to influence policy and reputation outcomes, we started by asking Doug what capabilities he sees that companies are looking for when they are hiring top-shelf public affairs practitioners. First of all, the versatility uh, in the job to use uh strategies and communications, government affairs, and corporate responsibility to achieve business goals. The ability to tie all those things together effectively and finding the synergy. Uh, You have to have a thorough understanding of the business. Um, This is not the kind of job where you take bad news and spin it into good news. That's kind of a myth. Maybe it existed 50 years ago, but it certainly doesn't exist now. You really need to understand the core business and have good relationships with core business executives. You've got to be able to form relationships um, at all levels. and understand others' needs and opinions because a lot of what you do in this job is to figure out what is the consensus. And the consensus can be about a communication strategy or about a public policy plan and and strategy, or it can be about a partnership um, that relates to a sustainability initiative. But it's it's all about bringing people together, and if you like doing that, you'll be successful uh, in this field. I also believe you've got to be innately an optimist especially if you work in the public policy world, especially if you work in North America right now, because not much is actually happening uh, in Congress. Um, More happens certainly in Canada than in the United States in this era. Um, But so you got to be someone who feels, okay, in the long term, we're going to be able to move things forward and, and we have a chance of being successful. You also have to increasingly have the marketing skills, the ability to target your audience, figure out what is the right message to to send to which audience, and then how do I build rapport with them so I can receive what messages they're sending to me and actually have a dialogue and a conversation, because it's not top-down communications now, if, if it ever was. Plus, you have to have the ability to go you know, beyond all this analysis and all this strategy, as important as it is, and have a bias for action, be the kind of person who just wants to get things done and is ready to, to get going and can see something through to completion. The Public Affairs Council recently completed research among corporations trading in the U.S. about how they are interacting with social issues. Doug says the research found that corporations believe increasingly that they have a vested interest to sustain returns to shareholders by engaging with social issues that they judge are important to a company's bottom line. Well, this is one of the, I think, more interesting developments in U.S. public affairs is when you see companies making the conscious business decision to get very involved in a social issue. Over the years, traditionally, companies would do that after a period of time, after facing a lot of pressure from their communities, other stakeholders and employees, they would get involved in issues related to hiring practices to have greater racial diversity or gender parity in management and things like that. But it would, it would always be very reactive. 
attractive. And unfortunately, a lot of companies were hesitant because they didn't want to go too quickly and they didn't want to make a mistake. And I think it came off as if companies didn't care about those issues. Well, in reality, if you talk to them as individuals, they did. But it was as if the entity of the company just you know, couldn't move fast enough. And that's really, really changed. I think there's a growing awareness among U.S. big companies in particular that a lot of these social and political issues can have a huge impact on a company's success. There is really a war for talent. And if you're going to be able to attract and retain the best people, especially people who are under 40, who, uh, of whom a large majority feel strongly that, that this kind of agenda dealing progressively with social issues is something that they want their employer to tackle, if you're going to be able to hire those people and keep them and make them feel proud of, of, of their company, you're going to have to at least consider getting more actively involved. Mm-hmm. For example, um, back when uh, marriage equality was uh, up for consideration and it was done on a state-by-state level until the U.S. Supreme Court finally interceded, uh, hundreds of companies, maybe 400, filed amicus briefs with the Supreme Court basically in support of marriage equality. And they said, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do socially, but even more important um, as, a, as, as, a, as a business imperative, because we have employees that are going to be transferred all throughout the country, and you can't have different marriage laws in different places because it's going to hurt our ability to attract people and move them around. But I think while some of them got involved because of that business imperative, they stayed involved because they started to feel, you know what, at a human level, you know, we shouldn't discriminate with, against people based on who they love. Sure. Um, so they got more involved. Um, other issues like protecting the environment and then racial or gender discrimination, uh, as I said earlier, companies have been much more active for a long, long time. North America has been home to its share of corporate scandals and of low public trust in big business. When we asked Doug about what he sees as the top four issues most likely to keep public affairs leaders awake at night, he placed falling trust in CEOs at the very top of the list. I think if you think of, consider the three or four big most challenging issues, number one would be political gridlock um, at the federal level in particular. Uh, it's just the inability of policymakers to make uh, smart, reasoned decisions on a timely basis. There is a reluctance, unfortunately, among some members of the U.S. Congress to compromise. In fact, they claim they were elected to not compromise, to just win outright, which when you think of it is kind of a childish way to approach governance and and just not effective because that's not the way policy is made. Um, So you have these corporate advocates who are trying to reach a compromise. You have others in Congress who are trying to reach a compromise that's fair and it's not a winner-take-all, but then you have this one segment that just refuses to do that. Um, In addition, you just have some real dislike and distrust between the major parties. And that, I think, hurts everyone. Um, And I get very concerned because when we face major crises related to war and terrorism and climate change and the the political refugee problems uh, that the world's facing now, um, you're going to have to work together because there are really no easy solutions. So that would be number one. The second would be, uh, I'd say, regulatory uncertainty. uh, both in Europe uh, and the U.S. Um, what companies look for is stability and consistency. I would wager that many CEOs would rather have tighter, tougher regulations that are consistent 
rather than having looser regulations in some places and tighter regulations in others. Because if you have to design a product eight different ways depending on what market it's sold in and that those laws might change, it's a very inefficient way to run a business and it's hard to project future sales. And it's hard to know when your, project will, your product will be pulled off the shelves in one place and when a market will be opened in another. So the regulatory uncertainty is a big deal and that's something that business leaders are constantly communicating to policymakers in Washington and I know uh, that's true in, in the member uh, states of Europe and in Brussels. Uh, let's figure out a regulatory climate uh, that everyone's okay with that is at least universally a bit more consistent. Um, number three, I think, would be the, the public distrust of big companies that exist. Um, we are at a level where uh, polls show that the public in the U.S. has a reasonably favorable opinion of big companies, but they don't like CEOs and they really don't trust companies to do the right thing most of the time. Um, that opinion is even worse in parts of uh, Asia and Europe. You know, it varies certainly country to country. Uh, and that tends to affect the climate for regulation uh, and the climate for negotiating any kind of, of positive public policy. I think the, the, the fourth point that I think um, executives would mention in North America is there is this growing trend for companies to start becoming more insular and putting up trade barriers. We haven't seen it in a major way, but the, um, the public opposition in the U.S. and Europe to a U.S.-European trade agreement is, uh, is alarming. And I am, I, that is a, a situation that I am not optimistic about. I think it could take years, if it ever happens, to negotiate that trade agreement. And now you have the Pacific Trade Agreement, which is extremely logical so that um, U.S. and some of its allies can hold um, a certain level of influence and market involvement uh, to counter what, what China has done. And, and if I were China, I'd be doing exactly what is, it is doing in that region of the world. And it's been a, a long process to develop that, that uh, draft agreement. Um, it is certainly subject to, to amendment, um, but yet um, both major political candidates in the United States, Clinton and Trump, have spoken out uh, against it. Trump has spoken out you know, very strongly that he hates all trade agreements. Uh, I'm not sure he's ever actually read a trade agreement, but that's his opinion. And Hillary Clinton, even though she was involved in the development of that trade agreement, says it's not perfect, it needs to be fixed. Um, she may be saying that largely because she understands public opinion is not necessarily pro-trade. So I think a lot of business executives who manufacture products and services in North America and who have expected much of their future growth to take place overseas are very worried because they don't know how any potential you know, trade wars might affect uh, the company's future profitability. You're listening to Very Public Affairs, the regular podcast of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. The Centre is a membership by company organisation comprising 150 member corporations across Asia Pacific. We work with our members to disseminate international best practice on managing corporate public affairs. And we offer and deliver professional development to public affairs practitioners globally including via our online learning platform. The Centre also conducts research into managing the function. Follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn or visit us at www.accpa.com.au or download the Centre's app, which is available both on iTunes and Google Play. After 17 years heading up the Public Affairs Council, Doug has seen many trends in the function rise and fade or become part of business as usual in how the public affairs function is managed. 
Over the next five years, he sees more anti-business sentiment globally, lower confidence in the CEO, and the challenge of the function to attract good talent as big headwinds facing functional leaders. Well, one of the major challenges companies will face in the next five or six years in the U.S., and in North America is the fact that polls show every year that CEOs are getting less and less popular. There's a lot of public concern about um, outlandish CEO compensation, and we've done polling on this, and only 8% of the American public believes that big company CEOs are ethical most of the time. That's only 8%. Um, there's the assumption that if you're in, you're in middle management, you're more ethical than CEOs, and if you're at the bottom level, regular employees, you're more ethical than middle management. So apparently when you go to work for a company, you start out ethical, and then as you move up, apparently you know all your integrity somehow evaporates. But that's the way people look at CEOs. And you can kind of laugh about it and say, oh, well, that's the price they pay for earning these big salaries. But I've been thinking about what the impact is from a corporate public affairs uh, perspective. So, for instance, if you have a crisis, absolutely, you need CEO and senior management up front, right? But let's say you're trying to open a facility in a town where there is opposition to that plant being opened. Let's say it's a chemical plant or some other refinery or processing plant, and there's a lot of public fear and concern. I'm not sure I'd send my CEO to a town hall meeting to defend that facility because before the CEO enters the room, he or she are going to be widely mistrusted by the crowd just because they're a CEO. Um, I would send a lower to mid-level team of people who grew up in the community uh, who didn't necessarily always work at that company, but who can vouch for the fact that this really is a good company, and that you know they can say that you know that we checked out this company. This is a, a company we were concerned about because we too have are worried about uh, a plant like this and whether there would be safety problems. But we've done our research and we found this is a really ethical company. They have a stellar safety track record, um, and they're kind they're the kind of organization we can be proud to call a neighbor. Plus, they're going to have a huge economic benefit to the town in terms of job creation. Um, but they're very open, and if people have concerns, they really want to you know, hear what you have to say. That messenger and that message is going to be way more effective uh, than a CEO. So one of the real problems is the fact that people don't like CEOs and that it's more than an annoyance at this point. I think it's starting to affect the way communications executives in particular use CEOs to represent the company. Another emerging issue is just the growing political uncertainty. Uh, companies like a predictable environment if they can have it. Uh, in the U.S., our uh, presidential race has put forward uh, candidates uh, during the primary and then the general election um, whose belief systems around certain business issues are either unknown or they're anti-business. Uh, doesn't mean they're all anti-business, um, but the tables have turned a bit in terms of whether the Democrat or the Republican is going to be the more pro-business candidate. There's a lot of concern about Donald Trump and whether his actual positions will be favorable to business or not. Uh, Clinton was considered a bit of a moderate when she was a senator, and um, some companies in New York State where she served as senator were worried that as a senator she wouldn't really help them on their business issues, and actually several I've talked to said they were pleasantly surprised with that when she was a senator, she actually did a pretty good job representing business interests. Now, of course, that makes her probably more controversial on the far left, the Bernie Sanders supporters who don't want her to be friendly to business. So she has to kind of watch the approach she takes. So it's the jockeying and the positioning and dealing with the public distrust of politicians and big business has made it harder for a pro-business candidate to say they're pro-business. And that creates more uncertainty for corporations.
There's a third trend I, I think it's worth mentioning that's been going on for probably 20 years, and that is the, the devolution of issues from the federal level to the state and local level. When Congress is deadlocked and they can't make a decision and there's stuff going on that need to be addressed, well, if you're an activist, if you're a company or an association, your next step is you go down to the state level and you try to win a few battles at the state level where it's frankly often easier to actually have a resolution, hopefully positive uh, for your industry or your cause, and you can cherry pick what state you're going to you know, really take this issue forward on. And then the thought is that if you can win four or five states, well, then it becomes an issue where Congress has to deal with it because maybe there's now a demand for national legislation either supporting your cause or opposing it, but at least it gets it on the docket and it gets debated. So that is a growing strategy. That's evening happening on the local level where there have been cases where city council in places like Boston uh, will vote to uh, make a decision related to foreign policy and foreign trade because they feel strongly about that issue and, and to some degree they're grandstanding to voters uh, to show that they care about jobs or they care about um, uh, foreign policy matters. So it becomes a more uh, challenging political climate because you're having to monitor thering, uh, national issues but at three levels of government. So that would be number three. Number four is an issue that every company faces, and that is the ability to attract and retain talent. Uh, there is a war for talent, uh, and companies will get involved in social issues sometimes because they're trying to be sure they have a workplace that is attractive to the, the best people, and it gives them the most options. And in corporate public affairs, even, uh, there is a war for talent because you need very talented people to be successful in this environment. And I think the last emerging issue I would mention um, for people working in public affairs is just having the sufficient staff and budgets to do the job. Um, it is a more important job than ever, but that doesn't mean you're going to get more people and a bigger budget to do uh, the more challenging job. So there is an ongoing effort uh, throughout the entire profession to figure out how to make your case convincingly to the powers that be at budget time uh, to make sure you have the resources you need to be effective. Finally, in our discussion with Doug about the state of public affairs in North America and Europe, we talked about the state of the integrated public affairs function, which is the most common organizational structure for the function in Asia-Pacific and in Europe. Well, in the U.S., it's not as common as it is in Australia, uh, Asia, and in Europe to have a totally integrated function, where you had a head of function, a senior VP of corporate affairs or public affairs, with communications, corporate responsibility, uh, government affairs, and other external functions reporting to that one person. Um, it was more common in the U.S. up through the late 80s, early 90s, but then when the management consultants came in and re-engineered a lot of companies, there was this move in the U.S. in particular to take corporate functions like marketing, public relations, as it was then called, uh, and government affairs, and move them closer to the customer. And the idea was to put them into the business units where the business unit leader could elect to, to get rid of that function, or to use it, um, or to outsource it, to staff it up or to staff it down. And the assumption was that this would be a way for a company to save money because, frankly, these functions weren't essential anyway. Well, along comes the internet, along comes globalization, and we now live in a, in a global marketplace where there are no secrets and transparency is everywhere and companies have to have consistency and clarity in their messages. And unfortunately, in a number of companies, particularly in the US, they have lost that control to have good consistency and clarity. And even though companies 
um, could elect to have one figure being in charge of all these functions, you know, you get you know careers where senior VPs have grown up in silos in the company and they're not at retirement age yet, and perhaps they don't have the skill level to take over one of these other functions, or perhaps there's an equally qualified person in this other silo and the CEO doesn't know to who to put in charge, so nothing gets done. Now, sometimes one of those people retires, there's a reorganization, and things change. Um, but nevertheless, I would say in about 40% of U.S. companies, there is an integrated function. Uh, the other reason that sometimes happens is, is out of just sheer, sheer uh, scale, really large companies tend to not group these roles under one person as much. And there is definitely a trend to not have a CEO have to deal with as many direct reports. So it's becoming more common in North America for the head of public affairs to, re to report to the general counsel, or to be the general counsel, perhaps, especially in regulated industries. Uh, there are other models where sometimes it reports to the president rather than the CEO or to a corporate senior VP or business unit leader. But I also think, though, that there is an awareness that among companies that you got to get everyone on the same page, that even if, even if you're not structured together, you need to work together. So in the US, it's now increasingly common to have some sort of a matrix management system where uh, when you're uh, deciding on issue priorities or dealing with crises or figuring out how to attack a problem or an opportunity using all of these various functions, you can still do it even if they don't report to the same person. Um, it's easier if it reports to the same person, but you've got to have the right talented individual in charge to make it work. The Centre has been a long-term advocate of the integrated function, and for some of the reasons Doug mentioned, including consistency, efficiency, and productivity. I note that Walmart has recently integrated its global corporate public affairs function, and that development alone is being watched very closely by other Fortune Top 50 companies that are managing functions that are not integrated. We'll watch this space. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks to Doug Pinkham, President of the Public Affairs Council, and thank you for listening. I look forward to you downloading our next episode, which will be available during the next few weeks from your subscription feed or via the Centre's app. I'm Wayne Burns. Goodbye for now. If you enjoyed this episode of Very Public Affairs, subscribe in iTunes and leave a review. For more, visit the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs website at www.accpa.com.au.